what we're going to find in 1 Peter is Peter won't allow the responsibility to be external to us. He always takes the responsibility and, and begins internal. And in the story that we read today in the passage, what he's addressing in the first century was a master-to-slave relationship. Now, slavery in the first century wasn't the same thing as slavery as we understand it in the 19th century. It wasn't based on race. Some individuals actually came into slavery as a choice, maybe to further themselves, to learn a trade. It didn't mean that slavery was a good thing. It was still a harsh and a difficult thing. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning verse 18, slaves, servants, submit yourselves to your masters. Now, as we get into this, what we're going to discover is how do we deal with evil and suffering in the world? And the questions that I want to answer are threefold. First of all, uh, what does it mean to respond to evil in a way that doesn't really lead to more evil, but actually leads to good? One of the things that Paul says, and we're going to jump into this in Romans 12, is that instead of responding with evil to evil, we should overcome evil. But the only thing that can overcome evil, which is good. We tend to, I think the natural human reaction in the the heart is to respond to evil with more evil. And then what do you get? You get more evil. But Paul's going to say, no, we've got to respond to evil with good. So what does that mean? And then second, how do we do it? And then finally, why is it so important? So first of all, what does it mean to respond to evil with good? How do we do that? And then finally, why is that so important? And so let's jump in. Actually, let's turn to Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12, Paul summarizes this same kind of argument. And underneath what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and what Paul says in Romans 12 is this central idea that the way we respond to evil is not by simply allowing ourselves to become passive, but rather to become aggressive. And that may seem surprising. Our response to evil is not to become passive, not to give up control, but rather to take control, to become very, very aggressive. Now, Peter, just quickly, in, in Peter chapter 2, explained it this way. He says, slaves, be subject to your masters. Now, that seems like a passive word, doesn't it? Because, see, to be subject means to submit, to come under the mission of someone else. But in terms of evil, under an unjust leader, he's going to say, do not be passive, be aggressive. Now, what does that look like? Well, let's look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 9. Paul said it this way. Romans 12, 9. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, and then jump down to verse 14. How do you do that? Well, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For so by doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. Rather, he says, overcome 
evil with good. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, this is how Jesus described it. Matthew 5, verse 38, he says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what does that mean? How do we do it? And why is it so important? Hey, before we jump in, let me pray. Father, I thank you that you tell us and you need to remind us that your word is living and active. It is sharper than a a double-edged sword. Lord, as you apply the word to our lives, you do not apply it like a sword, but as a scalpel, revealing in our own lives the things that you want to address and change. And so, Father, I'd ask today in Jesus' name that through uh, your word, would you speak to us, teach us, give us a heart of humility to listen and respond to you. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 18, Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. What you'll find in this section, and we began last week, he talked about submitting ourselves to governing authorities and how we respond to governing authorities not because of who they are, but because of who God is. That all authority comes from God. And so when we disrespect and dishonor authority, you're dishonoring God. When you disrespect and dishonor authority, whether that authority is just or unjust, whether you voted or did not, when you disrespect authority, he says you disrespect God because all authority in the end comes from God. So he ends in verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now the emperor, realize, is a guy named Nero. Now people today name their dogs Nero because Nero was a dog. Nero was immoral. He was unjust. He was thirsty for power. He was an individual that persecuted Christians under the time that Peter wrote many Christians at this time were being persecuted by Nero, whether burned at the stake, attacked by wild animals. Nero did things that were sadistically evil. And yet notice what Peter says we are to do with Nero. He says, honor the emperor. And as we learned last week, to honor does not mean to agree. I think we have to cut that in our American culture that when you honor an individual, you're honoring them because of, one, maybe the authority or the fact they're created in the image of God. And so when Peter says in verse 17, honor everyone, he's saying we honor everyone because everyone is created in the image of God. And we honor what God has created. And then beyond that, when God puts someone in authority, we honor the authority as we honor God. And so when we come to this next section, he's applying that idea to a different kind of relationship, an unjust relationship. And what's interesting is that Peter doesn't, he doesn't address the system, right? He doesn't start on a, a system level and say, hey, slavery is wrong. Uh, masters, release your slaves. He doesn't even say unjust masters. Here's what they deserve. Just like Jesus, he takes the responsibility and he directs it to us. And he says... If you're under unjust authority, 
This is how I want you to respond. I do not want you to be passive. Realize, I want you to be aggressive. See, that's what that word subject yourself means. It means be aggressive. It means do not lose control. It means take control. It doesn't mean stop thinking. It means you've got to begin thinking. Because when you're under unjust suffering, it's going to take everything in you to keep yourself from being passive. Now, what do I mean by that? What is the easiest thing to do when you suffer? And certainly when you suffer unjustly. What does it mean to pick up your feet and just to go with the the tide, to allow the river to take you where it wants to go? The easiest thing to do is to return evil with evil. What's the aggressive thing to do? What's the hard thing? To return evil with good. With good. And so he's saying to those that are going through unjust suffering, don't give in. Rather, instead of returning evil with evil, return evil with good. So let's pick it up in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, when one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you suffer and are beaten, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The most natural thing we can do is to give in to evil. But if evil is more than the actions of one individual, if evil is more than what a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old does in a school in Florida, if evil is personified as the Bible describes, when we give in to evil, we're allowing evil to win. Because he's saying what's happening to you is unjust. But don't turn what is unjust into greater injustice. Rather, take what is unjust, and you notice this word, it is gracious in the sight of God. The NIV translates it, it is commendable in the sight of God when we endure unjust suffering being conscious of God. Meaning to endure unjust suffering, it requires grace. The only resource that's available, I believe, in any philosophy or any religion is the grace of God to deal with evil and injustice. Because what he describes in this passage is not just what's happening to individuals. He says the very grace that's been given to us was given to us because the unjust injustice happened to Jesus. He was the one who was in every way perfect, and yet he suffered unjustly. He suffered injustice for us so that those who were unjust might be justified, meaning made right with God. Because he goes on, he says, what credit is it to you if you sin and are beaten and endure it? Meaning, if you do the wrong thing and you're caught, what good is that? But when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And here's why, because that's what Jesus did. And when we respond to evil and justice with grace and love, it reveals the gospel. Because notice in verse 21, why why does it reveal the gospel? For to this you've been called. Because Christ suffered for you, and He left us an example. That word example in the Greek, it's interesting. It's, It's the word picture that means to trace out. You remember when you're a kid, you trace the lines of a drawing. And it means to trace out. What Jesus has left us is a picture of a life. 
And he says that Jesus has left us an example that we could follow. We could trace his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When they reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. See, the enemy that we need to address is not simply the one that, that hurts us. The enemy we need to address is the evil behind the one that hurts us. We don't just address the evildoer. What's Jesus saying? What Jesus came to do was not just to destroy evil because He would have destroyed us. He came to destroy the evil behind evil. And likewise, when we deal with injustice, we have to realize we're not just fighting people. The Bible is saying you're fighting evil. And if you have an enemy, what's the most powerful way to destroy that enemy? But to take away his influence. And if there's an evildoer, the, the most effective way to render him powerless is take away the power that influences him. And if the power that influences him is evil, what you do is you attack the evil. You destroy the foundation. You take out their communications. You take out their leader. And so he says when we respond to evil with evil, all we're doing is giving ourselves over to evil. But when we respond to evil with good, we destroy the source of evil. Because let's be honest, good doesn't come from us. I mean, I know we like to see ourselves in that way, but the Scripture is clear. Good doesn't come from us. Good comes from God. Jesus had this conversation with a, uh, an individual, and, and the guy says to him, you know, good teacher. And he says, why do you call me good? There is none good but God alone. And in that passage, he was showing him that goodness comes from God. And in our sinful condition, the Bible says that our hearts are wicked above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That there's a greater battle than just injustice and wrongdoing. Rather, he's saying there's a, there's a goodness in the world and there is an evil. And to take out evil, we have to undermine the power behind it. And see, that's what Scripture is getting at. Why does Jesus say, pray for those who persecute you? Because they're enslaved. Why does he say pray for those who persecute? Because they're enslaved. Now, we just hate them, right? Why? Because we're overcome by evil. Why is it so natural for us to respond to evil with evil? Because that's natural to us. The unnatural thing is to respond to evil with good. That's divine. Because when you respond to evil with good, it takes away the power of evil. You see what he's saying? That underneath evil is a greater source. And so how are we going to do that? Because that seems kind of fanciful, doesn't it? I mean, it seems, you know, Jesus could do that, but I can't. And all of us have those stories and instance, you know, times where somebody has done something to us, maybe it's to a family member, somebody we love, and that rage is still fresh in our heart. It could be 20 years ago. And there's that bitterness, there's anger, venom vitriol. How do you address that? I mean, what's going on when we feel that bitterness and rage and hatred? What Jesus says, what Peter's saying is we're, we're becoming passive. We're not fighting. We're not pushing back against evil. We're kind of saying, okay, evil, have your way. Why don't you take over? So how do we respond? Well, a couple things that I think this text draws us to and 
that, that we have to hold on to. And the first is we've got to get aggressive. We've got to hate evil. And we have to stop hating people. We have to hate evil. And we have to stop hating people. From the cross, Jesus said, Father, what? Forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus saw behind the evil actions of others a greater enemy. That these weren't just individuals who were perpetrating evil. These were individuals who were enslaved to evil. And the only way to release them from that enslavement is through good. And so how do we do that? Well, in Romans 12, 9, it says, Abhor what is evil, meaning hate what is evil. Get angry towards what is evil. You know, a lot of people think the God of the Old Testament is angry. Jesus is a lot more angry. You look at Jesus in the New Testament, he gets angry. And actually, the, the words say he boils with anger in the Greek. His, his stomach, his loins, whatever that is. He's boiling from the inside. He, he gets angry when he sees the death of Lazarus. He comes to the tomb of Lazarus, a friend, and he is angry. He's not just angry at individuals. He's angry at death. He's angry at the, the way things are. He goes to the temple and he sees what they've done to the worship of God and he's, he's enraged with anger. He comes to Jerusalem. He weeps over the city. He sees the brokenness. Jesus was far more angry than we are. You know why? Because he was far more good than we are. The reason Jesus was far more angry than we are is he was far more good than we are. And when you are good, you protect that which is good. That's what that anger is. It's a self-righteous, not self-righteous, a, a righteousness, a righteous kind of anger. Because when you are good, you protect that which is good. There was an old uh, Anglican priest called E.H. Gifford, and he, he summarized this great uh, picture this way. He used this, this idea. He said, The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, and the traitor. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates the things that are enslaving his son. Now notice, he doesn't hate his son, does he? He hates the things that enslave his son. Author uh, Becky Piper captured it this way. She said, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hatred is. The final form of hate is indifference, meaning not caring. See, the way we respond to evil is to put our target on evil. Not simply to hate the individual, but to hate what is enslaving the individual. Now, how do we do that? Well, the first thing we need is a humble spirit. And you'll notice in verse 21, this is how Peter captured it. He says, Christ suffered for you. Now, realize this, these are individuals that are going through suffering. Why would he remind individuals who are going through unjust suffering that Christ suffered for them? To remind them that they also are unjust. That the injustice they're experiencing from others is, is an injustice that's also in them. And that Jesus had to suffer for their sin, which leads to humility. It has to lead to humility. The one thing the cross cannot lead to is pride. Because at the cross, we have to recognize it was while I was a sinner that Christ died for me. 
that Christ suffered for me. Now, what does that look like? Well, in Matthew 5, as we read, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. And I know a lot of people don't like that. Our modern culture really despises that whole concept. It says, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, if somebody attacks you, physically attacks you, why would you turn the other cheek? Well, first of all, understand when somebody slaps you on the cheek, they're not attacking you physically. I mean, just read any martial arts book. It's not an effective a physical attack to simply slap someone on the cheek. The idea of a cheek in the first century was it was a picture of relationship. You can imagine someone coming up to another in the Middle East, even today, what they would do is to greet you with a, a kiss on the cheek. It was a sign of relationship. And so when someone is slapped on the cheek, it's an insult. You're being despised. You're being rejected. It's a blow to the ego. And so when you're slapped on the cheek, what you want to do is to save face, right? You want to protect yourself. Now, what does it mean to turn the other cheek? Well, to turn the other cheek doesn't mean to ignore what's, been, what's happened to you. Because if you don't address the sin, that's not loving. If you love somebody, you've got to address the sin in your life. But to turn the other cheek, if the cheek represents the relationship, it means address the wrong, but leave the possibility for a relationship. Address the wrong, turn the other cheek. But don't close the door on the relationship. What's the first thing we do when we get injured? You're done. You're dead to me. It's over. Politically, when we disagree, we're done. We're not going to communicate. What's he saying? Address the evil, but leave the door open for the relationship. Don't close the door. Now, how do you do that? Well, you've got to be humble. You've got to realize that you don't need to save face. Why? Because my identity is not in what you think about me. My identity is in Christ. And see, my, my affirmation comes from the Father that in His sight, I am loved. I'm a child of God. And the Father welcomes me as if He welcomes Jesus Himself to the degree that that identity begins to saturate the heart to that degree, I don't need the approval of others. I don't need to save face. But rather, what it does is gives me a wisdom to recognize that I have the opportunity to set someone free. I have the opportunity to respond to evil, not with evil, but rather respond to evil with good. And so we need humility. But third, he's going to say we have to be willing to bless and not curse. So pick it up in verse 22. He's describing Jesus and it says that He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. And notice verse 23, when they hurled and reviled against Him, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. And then in chapter 3, verse 9, Peter goes on to say, do not repay evil for evil, but reviling with reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. See, to curse means to cut. That when you curse someone, you use the truth, and it could be a true statement, but you don't use that statement to build, you use that statement to, to cut. To bless means simply to build up. It's to take the truth. It's not to say words that aren't true, but rather to use the truth in a way that builds someone up. Now, here's a great picture of that. You ready? Ready? 1 Samuel chapter 24. If there's ever a story of someone that suffered unjustly, if someone 
who suffered for no uh, needless person, a purpose, it's in, it's in 1 Samuel 24. Because David is on the run. Saul is seeking his life. And yet there's this very humorous and odd story that happens where Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself. And David is there. And instead of attacking Saul, David cuts a piece of his garment. And when Saul goes out of the cave, David comes out, and this is, this is how he responds. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 8, it says, Afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. Now realize, Saul is the one who's seeking to take his life. And he says, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage to him. Does that seem wrong to you? This guy's trying to take his life. But he doesn't say, hey, you jerk. Hey, you idiot. Hey, you're stupid. He says, my king. How often when we have a president we disagree with, we don't call him my president. We say, you jerk. You idiot. I think David understands the difference between agreement and honor. And so he goes on, verse 11, and then notice the way that, that David speaks to him. He says, see my father. See the corner of your robe in my hand. He calls Saul my father. It's a term of endearment. He's showing respect. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. What's he doing? He's turning the other cheek. But listen, he's not being passive, he's being aggressive because after he lays down this honor and respect, notice the way he responds, I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life and take it. I'm going to address the sin in your life, but I'm going to do so in a way that is seasoned with salt. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. You see his response? I'm not going to respond to evil with evil. I'm going to overcome evil with good. I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust God. And so we have to have, on the one hand, a hatred not for the individual, but for evil. Second, we've got to have a humble spirit. And then we've got to learn to honor, but not necessarily agree. We have to use words of blessing. And then fourth and final, you have to have a forgiving heart. The last thing that we need is a forgiving heart. Now, where does, where does that come from? Where does that, that power to forgive come from? Because if you look at this life, I mean, think of it. A hatred for evil, not a hatred for the person. Humility, a, willing to, a willingness to bless, a willingness to forgive. Where do you see that? I mean, is that how we normally respond in human relationships? You know, just so forgiving. Now, often what happens is we become incredibly passive and we don't want to address the wrong that others do to us. There's a word for that. It's called cowardice. I don't want to address what you've done to me. I, I don't want to, to, to get into conflict with you. Or on the other hand, we go to the far side and it turns to revenge and anger. But what you see in this passage is not a, a, an anger, a hatred, not a self-hatred. Rather, there's this humility with courage. There is love with justice, and that's unlike anything we've ever seen. So where does this forgiving heart come from? Well, verse 23, notice it says, when, when he, meaning Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. 
But notice he continued, this is Jesus, entrusting himself to who? The one who judges justly. What's he saying? Here's, here's the big picture. I don't know what you deserve. What's he saying? When Jesus was mistreated, the thing he did not assume was judgment. When we are mistreated, what's the first thing we assume? Judgment. I know what you deserve. I know your motives. I know why you did what you did. God's going to get you, sucker. Right? I know what you deserve. What did Jesus... Listen, Jesus was pure in every way. He knew people's motives. But what did he not assume? He did not assume the place of the judge. He said, I don't know what you deserve. I don't know. I'm going to leave that up to God. Because in Romans 12, it says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Meaning, Jason, it's not yours. Hey, hey, I understand you're suffering. I understand it's hard. But instead of being passive, Jason, why now? Why don't you become real aggressive? Why don't you start thinking? Instead of attacking the person, why don't you attack evil? Why don't you, instead of attacking person and, and seeing the sin in others, why don't you see the plank in your own eye? Why don't you become humble? And instead of cursing, why don't you kind of, kind of pause the heart for a minute and, and approach somebody with honor and respect? Season with salt. Why don't you cultivate a forgiving heart? Because where does that forgiving heart come from? Well, God repays. Now, in the language of forgiveness, you're always going to find the language of debt. You notice that? In the language of forgiveness, you always find the language of debt. Why is there a language of debt? Because if you come to my house and break my lamp, there's a debt. Now, what's the debt? Well, either I've got to replace the lamp or you've got to replace the lamp. Somebody's got to replace the lamp. It's not as if when the lamp is broken or when there's an injury to my heart or to my family, it's not as if that thing just goes away, does it? The debt has to be paid. Well, there's two ways, maybe three ways to repay the debt. You can repay the debt passively kind of by beating yourself up. Hey, I brought it on myself. And you beat yourself up. Hey, look at the person that I am. I'm not worthy to be loved. I'm not worthy to be cared for. You're paying down the debt. Others of us, we don't beat ourselves up. We take it out on others. Now, some of us do it outwardly, but most of us are more reserved and refined in our revenge. And we just tear you down through the watches of the night. We think about how that conversation could have gone better if I had only said this. You know, she is just a... And you replay that. What's happening when you replay those thoughts and you're tearing somebody down? You know what's happening? You're repaying the debt. But instead of overcoming evil, what's happening is the evil that is done to you is now overcoming, it's overcoming you. Well, what's the last way? The last way is we have to give that debt to God. We've got to turn over that debt to God. Listen, go to the Psalms, okay? You're going to be surprised how they overcome that debt. You know how they do it? It's ugly. Yeah, I don't know why. I think in our prayers, we like this, this really refined prayer life. But David didn't pray like that. David was mad. He was angry. He was lamenting. He was crying, God, wipe out my enemies. 
Why? Because to say that in the presence of God keeps me from saying that in the presence of people. By pouring out my anger, my frustration to God allows God to then address my life and I'm pouring it out to Him. I'm not pouring it out on you. And God's big enough, right? He can handle it. Read Psalm 88. It's the darkest psalm in the entire psalm. And essentially it ends with this. Hello, darkness, my old friend. You've heard that song? It says, darkness is better than you, God. But here's the beauty. That's a prayer that's spoken in God's presence. What's going on? He's dealing with suffering and injustice, but instead of allowing evil to take control, he's pouring out that evil back to God. And what has Jesus done to cover that debt? Well, he committed no sin, and yet no deceit was in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And listen, Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? Church, why? So I could die to sin. So I could say no more. So that I could end the cycle of vengeance. He suffered in his body so that we might die to sin, but here's the flip side, and live for righteousness. It's by his wounds we're healed. Because here's the truth. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we can say no to sin. Let's just be honest. What are we saying yes to? Are we saying yes to evil? Are we just blaming others? You know, it's their fault. The government would get things together, control things, this wouldn't happen. Blaming parents. You know, the parents would just parent better, things would get better. Are we willing to stop and be a part of the solution? Are we willing to mourn with those who mourn? Are we willing not just to attack the evil, but to realize that, that people are enslaved? And the solution isn't more evil. How did Jesus win? He destroyed the evil in us without destroying us. I mean, isn't that amazing? He destroyed the evil in us without destroying us by destroying the power of sin on the cross by demonstrating grace. Because see, when grace comes in, you see the power of God. And it's grace that we need to address the injustice and evil in life. But the question is, what are we saying yes to? We've got we've to think. And when we see evil and justice in the world, we've got to say, wait a minute, I'm not going to fight evil with evil. Rather, I'm going to bow my knee and, Lord, I need to talk this out with you because I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm broken. I hate what's going on in our world today. But I'm not going to take that out on others Lord, I'm going to look at what you've done for me. I'm going to live out of your sacrifice. Because who is God? God is just. What did Jesus do? He suffered unjustly. Why? Because I'm unjust. So what should I do? With that resource and grace, I should suffer for others so that they might be set free. What's the Christian life? 
To this you were called. To what? To what were we called? To address evil with good. That is the life we're called to live. Now, we need each other in that. Because here's the reality. I get blind to my own hatred and anger. Are you with me? I get blind to my own hatred and anger, and I need someone like you that can see the speck in my eye, having addressed the plank in your eye, and say, you know, I think there's something you need to address, because here's the reality. You're not going to do this on your own. We've got to come together with Jesus as the center and begin to address the anger and the frustration in our lives so that God will be glorified. Because in the end, that's what matters, and that's what lasts. You with me? And let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that your power is perfected in weakness. And Lord, so when we get enraged by the evil in the world and we have this desire just to see justice, not justice that redeems, but justice that will destroy. I'm reminded, Lord, that you did not destroy me. Though at times... Obedience does feel like death because I'm surrendering to you. Lord, you did not destroy, but instead you poured out your life on the cross. Lord, you became one of us. And you didn't become one of us who sat and lorded over us. You did not become one who used truth to cut and to destroy and to tear down, but rather you became a servant and a servant of all, for you died on the cross and you took my debt. You destroyed evil in us so that we... Lord, could know what is good. And so, Father, with that upside-down reality, help us, Lord, to walk in this life in ways that reflect you and the power of the gospel. And, Father, help us here. Help us to be in each other's lives in a way that can speak truth and grace, not to hurt or destroy, but rather to raise up. So, Father, guide us in this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.